0: is the Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria.
1: After all of the rain, all of the boggings, all of the hail knocking grain from crops, it still looks like we are close to a record harvest in Victoria. What do you think that means? Does that show the rise in technology? Do you think you're a better farmer than maybe the generations that came before you with your access to technology, your skills and the knowledge and the ability to produce a big crop, even in trying conditions. I'd love your thoughts on that. Hello, welcome to the Country Hour. Warwick Long with you on the program today. Also today, and we'll talk about this shortly, with a couple of wool growers as well, Melbourne and Geelong stand out as the most likely locations for a revival of wool processing in Australia. Is this what the wool industry needs to bring more processing back on shore, almost back to the future really, isn't it, and produce the fibre here from sheep to garment? Plus, we'll continue our coverage of what's going on with the livestock on that ship in Western Australia and their future from here. We'll speak to the processing industry today about the ability to process that many sheep on board and where that can happen given a licence hasn't been granted for the ship to be able to resale to uh, another destination to Israel via the Horn of Africa to try and uh, continue its journey to uh, export animals out of Western Australia. All of that and more coming up. would love your input today.
0: The Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria.
1: Melbourne and Geelong, as I said, stand out as the most likely places for a revival in early-stage wool processing in Australia. Australian farmers export 80% of their wool for processing to just one country, China. But could the industry wind back the clock and restart domestic manufacturing? A new Commonwealth-funded report has looked at a business case for early-stage processing in Australia and earmarked three potential locations with Victoria as the winner. Adam Dawes is General Manager at Wool Producers Australia, and he told Josh Becker there is a good case for diversifying the wool supply chain.
2: Yeah, I think, Josh, there's an obvious need for um, increased diversification of wool processing. As listeners would be aware, the vast majority of our wool trending around about 80% of the wool that we produce currently all goes to China for processing of that is retained in China through until the point of retail consumption, and the other 50% is exported to third countries, either as final products or intermediate wool products. And with that market concentration and that reliance on a single market, there's some obvious trade risks that come about. So diversification of trade would be a good thing for the Australian wool industry, be that domestic processing to diversified countries or sending greasy wool potentially scoured wool to diversified food countries would also be a good thing.
3: Wool growers have often raised concerns about the over-reliance on one main buyer for Australian wool, but some other analysts have argued that it's actually a symbiotic relationship where China is reliant as well on Australia to keep those mills running. And that's one of the key reasons that some say that it wasn't targeted like wine and barley were with tariffs. Do you see any merit to that kind of argument?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think we certainly acknowledge that the, the relationship that we've got with the Chinese wool processes is an extremely valuable one, and it will continue to be valuable in the future. I think we need to try and ensure that we, I guess, uh, achieve supply chain diversification, as we see growing demand for the wool fibre. And I think that growing demand and the capacity that will serve that demand can be established in potential growth markets like India, Bangladesh and Vietnam that have also been assessed as part of this work.
3: You've commissioned this significant report from Deloitte um, where it looks at some potential opportunities for the industry to look at early stage wool processing. Uh, What did it find?
2: What this piece of work has now looked to do is to really develop some roadmaps and some tangible pathways of how we can implement that domestic and diversified processing. So now the the findings of this report and that really um, I think it's evidenced by the reports there's quite a bit of work that's been done now needs to be taken back into the industry representative groups to work on how we pursue the delivery of that trade risk mitigation on behalf of the broader Australian wool industry and particularly Australian growers. And and largely the locations that were assessed were logically locations that have previously processed wool. So Australia processed a lot of the wool that we grew to some extent up until the 1990s, at which time it started to get offshored due to cost of processing and it followed lower cost processing markets. What we came up with after that multi-criteria assessment and the risk assessment was the preferred locations to look at going forward would be a Metro Vic or a uh, Riverina New South Wales, or potentially a, a South Australian um, Green Triangle type option.
3: As I understand it, Metro, Metropolitan Victoria was the, the number one choice on the list?
2: Yeah, that was the one that stacked up most, most strongly. I think the other thing that we need to recognise in terms of Metro Vic being the preferred location, there's just such such an aggregation of walls of different types and options for procuring walls for a processing facility in Melbourne. So that's, that provides a distinct advantage over, say, a regional location. It's not to say that, you know, an investor might have other criteria that weren't taken into account that might favour another location or perhaps a location that wasn't even considered.
3: Have you crunched the numbers on the business case and, and whether it makes sense? Yeah,
2: look, I think, Josh, it's got to be looked at from the perspective of an investor that's floating around with you know the tens of millions of dollars of capital investment that a project like this would require. Um, if they're looking to park their money somewhere, uh, early stage wool processing probably doesn't quite stack up, but the business case that really needs to be put to government is there is a real case for some support to assist with the capital investment, be that through mechanisms like the National Reconstruction Fund is one that really came to the top, that might help to make the commercial business case more feasible. And I think you know what we really need to emphasise to government is that if Australia had the ability to process or export 50% of the wool that we grow to diversified markets, that reduces our level of trade risk exposure by about $1.1 billion per annum. That's in the case of a foot-and-mouth disease outbreak. So there's some real economy-wide benefits that are not necessarily in the direct commercial interests of a private investor. that The Australian government could invest in, um, in that economy-wide risk mitigation.
1: So a report, a push for government money and identifying Victoria, Melbourne or Geelong – as a possible place to build uh, early-stage wool processing back again in Australia. Yep, back to the future. Is that a good idea? You can send us a text and let us know, 0467 722. That was Adam Dawes, General Manager at Wool Producers Australia, speaking to Josh Becker about their report. I wanted to know how growers felt about this, so I called a couple over the last uh, hour or so. Alistair Laid is at Highlands in Victoria. I suppose you'd almost say near Seymour or something there, Alistair. Uh, Welcome to the program. Thank you. The idea, Alistair, of more wool processing in Australia. You've been in an industry where your wool's pretty much come off farm, been sold and gone overseas for, for many years now. How do you feel about bringing some of that processing back on shore?
4: Look, I think we're getting into the age now where we need to do a lot more value adding on our home soil. We really need in Australia to get manufacturing going and this would be a really good opportunity to do a bit of value adding for our wool clip. And what about the argument that Australia, it's too
1: expensive to manufacture in Australia and you won't be competitive even if the the government helps you build a manufacturing site?
4: Well, New Zealand seems to be uh, uh, sort of that problem out. There. They, most of the wool that they export is actually it's certainly been scoured. Um, I think now we've got a lot new technology and systems where we aren't nearly as reliant on labour um, as we used to be in the past. So I think you know, that there's a huge opportunity for using some of the um, advances in technology and systems. To, to do processing and not get um, too tied up with the cost of labour. Is it exciting to you to hear your industry talking about this again? Oh, definitely.
1: When was the last yeah. time your wool would have been processed to any extent locally?
4: Uh, probably 10 years ago, we had some lamb's wool that went to um, South Korea that was processed locally, um, and that was a really uh, – Interesting process and uh, very rewarding to get feedback from the mill um, about uh, yeah the quality of our wool. So so it's
1: exciting to you, but I wanted to ask you this, Alistair, because you've, I hope you don't mind me saying, you've been in this industry for some time. Is it frustrating that uh, it's seemingly gone full circle from an industry where there was a lot of processing to almost all export now talking about processing locally again?
4: Yeah, look, I think there's uh, the wool industry plus a number of other industries, um, we're exporting raw material at um, very low value compared to what the end product is, and so if we can capture some of that on the Australian shores, I think that's a big huge advantage. We hopefully would get a little bit of price benefit from it, but it would also be really good for the local economy.
1: And you might be, if Melbourne and Geelong, as the preferred sites uh, were built, you could be as close to an hour away of of the processing facility, which I'd imagine would be exciting for you. Yep, definitely. (laughs) Uh, Alistair, thank you so much for joining us with your thoughts on the program. Alistair late there uh, from Highlands in uh, central Victoria. A little bit further up the highway is Tolan Marino's at Violet Town. Simon Riddle can join us from there. Hi, Simon. How are you going? I'm good. We've pulled you away from crutching, so I don't know if that's a good thing for us to give you a break or if I'm I'm, I'm, I'm stopping you doing your work. But thank you, nonetheless. How do you feel about the idea of more processing here?
5: Yeah, look, I think that, um, like Alice just said, I think it's really good for, for the economy here in Australia, um, especially Victoria. Down here, um, we we have had a few bales recently sold to an independent buyer who's um, made jumpers and sweaters and scarves and everything out of wool from here. And it's the whole process that's done in Victoria, which is pretty exciting to see. And if we can do that on a larger scale, I think it's pretty exciting for every grower.
1: And the idea, Simon, as well, I'd imagine, for your industry to continue for generations to come, having more processing here, do you think that is something to inspire or excite the next generation of wool growers to want to stay in an industry that has had its ups and downs?
5: Yeah, I, I believe that um, the, new, the next generation, uh, you, as we all know, um, like to see things from the start right to the finish and then have a story behind it. So I think we can actually get a lot more people into the industry if we can do stuff like this. And it's not just farming. Then you could actually be on the next phase um, down the line rather than having to do the farming. You, just, you can jump into the queue.
1: Yeah. Do Do you think the Australian wool industry and, and through your other project where you where you had some of your wool processed and turned into garments is it a good story to tell
5: yeah i I think it is i think we can back ourselves as farmers um in in what we do and and it is a good way to get it out there and with the final product the show it's just it just gives that complete story which people can get behind and and enjoy you
1: and alistair both of the wool growers here both haven't spoken about whether it would make you any more money though is is that Something that would happen, or are you happy to almost keep the, the same prices if you had a local industry?
5: No, I think it, it would definitely benefit benefit us. It's going to be um, it's going to be cost saving, uh, but more importantly, it opens up more markets for our wool, and it's the, the consumer that's buying our wool that dictates our price. If we can get more competition on either raw wool or processed wool, um, I think it's going to be benefit us greatly.
1: And how are the sheep going? If you've got them in for crutching, how's things looking this season for you, Sam?
5: Yeah, look, the uh, the seasons are going really well. They're they're fat. We haven't fed them yet, so um, you can't complain. We've got to deal with a couple of fly issues, but overall, really, no, going really well.
1: Pretty green for February, I reckon. Uh, thank you very much for joining us, and good luck with the rest of your afternoon.
5: All right, cheers. Thank you.
1: Uh, there you go, Simon Riddle from Toland is joining you on the program. There, talking about their views on wall pricing. Some of your Views coming in on the text line. Brian says, anything that brings industry back to Australia should be investigated and supported. Financial... Industrial assassination from cheap labour countries needs to be rectified, says Brian. Bob Churchill says processing uh, wool locally makes so much sense. Uh, Basically, the simple act of value adding before export is almost in the country's national security interests. Australia is so backwards slash lazy in simply exporting raw materials. Mining is a classic says Bob in Churchill. Uh, The head of a group representing meat processors in Australia says he doesn't think any abattoir in Australia is ready to start processing sheep stranded on a live export vessel off the West Australian coast. The Federal Department of Agriculture rejected an application to re-export the livestock on board the MV Bahaja around Africa to Israel. And many are now asking what will happen to the livestock on board. So... We called the group representing meat processors to find out if they had a role to play here. Patrick Hutchinson is from the Australian Meat Industry Council. He says the animals, if they're to be killed in Australia, it will take some time to organise.
6: We uh, don't really know what the process is going to be at the moment. We haven't been given any any sort of guidance at all. Obviously, this is a departmental decision to withdraw the um, the, the export permit. However, it's still a commercial decision from the exporter as to what they do. So we're not compelled to process. They're not compelled to sell to us. Uh, potentially, they could uh, background these animals again and then uh, put them back uh, after a, a long spell to be re-exported if they're still in spec. We, we don't have any idea. So at this stage, all we know is these animals will you know, be re- re- unloaded and um, you know, then the commercial... Uh, reality of the whole process will take its course.
1: There's an extra layer to this, though, isn't there, around the debate of live export, but also the processing capacity of uh, Western Australia to process animals like this. Large processors in WA say they're at capacity until about April. So I suppose that leaves smaller processors or even other states to kill these animals if they're not backgrounded. Does that highlight constraints in the processing industry?
6: There always are some constraints at any particular time around Australia. I think as well we probably should uh, recognise that I don't think any uh, processor in the country would be able to all of a sudden start processing 15,000 sheep as opposed to all of those other producers who have been uh, working on their their livestock, diligently waiting, everything being set up and then next minute, sorry, uh, we now have to process these. For some people, 15,000 sheep could well be, you know, four days' kill. Out of six, so look, there there are many and varied ways. If uh, processors were compelled to process these, including weekends, uh, to 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 manage those, um, splitting them up, etc. So all of those would be there. But as I said previously, the scenario is is that this is a department's decision not to grant them an export license, so they'll be unloaded. That, that exporter will make a commercial decision around that.
1: And big picture is something you do in your role, right? So big picture, does this do events like this highlight the need for further investment or support for processing capacity in WA?
6: I think in WA we've um, uh, had this discussion uh, obviously quite a lot over the last six months. We have provided the necessary information about what does an expanded a uh, meat processing um, uh, industry in WA look like, but again, you know we've got to be absolutely clearly vital about how we manage this. And the reason that we do that is, is in too many times over the last hundred years in this country, we have expanded capacity and processing, only to have either climatic conditions or many other things un- be undertaken in order to ensure that uh, uh, we then have an undersupply or we have an oversupply of workers. This is about looking at. How can we effectively invest into the future around innovation and many other uh, opportunities to allow us to then, uh, uh, you know, expand uh, the meat processing uh, capacity but in a way that is manageable and that doesn't put strain on those processing companies that all of a sudden they could have, you know, machines, they can have structures and systems idle uh, for periods of time.
1: These Government Department decisions are happening at a time the Government is investigating its plan to phase out live export of sheep from Australia as a policy. As meat processes in Australia, you're not taking part in live export, but do you have a position on whether live export of sheep could, should continue?
6: No, we don't have a position, Warwick. It's nothing to do with us. Um, uh, live sheep uh, in Western Australia and live cattle uh, are a competitor to us and uh, they take a certain type of livestock uh, at a certain time, uh, in a lot of circumstances, with sheep, very much out a specification for the domestic market, uh, and certainly more, uh, uh, you know, in, in uh, that export market, uh, very much the same. So, it's very much horses for courses. Um, um, yeah, we don't have any position in regards to. Uh, live export they're a competitor and that's that's that.
1: So with that in mind given you work with that industry but you also stand to benefit if it's phased out how do you think their government's handling this issue with this boat?
6: Look I think that there's a lot of moving parts in regards to this boat there's a lot of scenarios that we've put forward uh, that have been put forward to us and others I think that in this time what happened has happened has been that it's very opaque in regards to decision making. And as such, uh, once the secretary of the department has come in, uh, you know, there's certainly been a, a pretty quick um, resolution to that. So I think where the frustrations have lied for a lot of people is they've not really understood the decision-making process goes, but also um, we've got to remember that the uh, current regulatory require, regulatory environment means that the exporter is making most of the decisions. So the the, uh, the department can only make a decision based on if, uh, if based on what an exporter wants to make a decision on. Do you want to go a certain spot? Do you want to unload? Do you want to load some, etc. So that's what we've heard. But again, from a processing perspective, you know we've just been an observer around this in order to ensure that we're ready if you know we're compelled to do something. I think probably more importantly to one of your points around we stand to benefit. I think we've got to keep remembering, currently these sheep as they are uh, when they are exported are out of spec for most of our markets. Now if uh, live sheep were to, to cease, in fact, it's actually about the producer's decision to want to continue to produce sheep, so that's the, that's the scenario. So. We don't stand to benefit if a producer decides that they're not going to produce sheep anymore.
1: With the knowledge of um, processing in mind, then, there's been speculation that these sheep would be moved on to other states where there is more processing capacity. Is it feasible to send the boat around or to put the sheep on a train to South Australia or Victoria yeah, for processing?
6: I, uh, yeah. I, I couldn't really answer that because that they're going to be commercial decisions.
1: That is Patrick Hutchinson from the Australian Meat Industry Council speaking about the future of the sheep particularly and the cattle aboard the boat on in Western Australia that has been refused a live export licence to try to set sail again this time for Israel via the Horn of Africa. But have been speaking today about a push to look at more processing of wool in Australia, more onshore processing of wool in Australia, identifying metropolitan areas of Victoria, i.e. Melbourne and Geelong, as the best places to do that, again, if the government was looking to support more processing of wool in Australia. A lot of your texts coming in uh, on that. Uh, Nick in Hillside, though, says, I believe one of the factors that destroyed our wool processing was differential tariffs by importing countries. The more our wool was processed, the higher the tariff. Importers wanted to keep the value adding for themselves, says Nick from Hillside. Another one adding, though, I've got a friend who's doing single-source merino yarn now. 100% Australian grown and produced, all done in Australia. No offshore Processing that is very much the minority in fact, at the moment it 's almost the smallest it has been in the wall clips history, and this is a report to try and change that. but thank you for alerting us to that all the same. The world needs food, not fiber don 't waste time or government government dollars, um, which has more important things to do. Uh, with their dollars, then support a cottage industry of no point," says one text message. Not liking, obviously, see what they're hearing there. And Chris says, "Warwick, we should have never allowed our wool processing to go offshore. The government should be backing to the nth degree any processor willing to restart our own processing again. Any uh, another way to reduce our reliance on China?" says Chris. And then there was this as well, saying, "I'm a little fatigued of people complaining about the government's not holding big companies accountable, but at election time, people still." Don't consider the Greens the only party that actually wants to implement policies that actually uh, help people and not large companies. Well, in relation to this wool processing, uh, I suppose there are a number of issues that people uh, would vote on as well. And Greens have part policies around mulesing in sheep, around live export in sheep as well, which many producers. Uh, might fall on either side of that debate as well. So I suppose there's a lot more when it comes to any of this to what people vote on, and that is part of the joy and what I enjoy about election coverage so much when we have elections to talk about. But we don't have one right now, so let's not talk elections. Let's talk rural news. Emma Field can do that for us, particularly uh, on that boat, but things like rain and all sorts of stuff coming up for you in rural news today. Good afternoon, Emma.
7: G'day, Warwick. Federal Agriculture Minister Murray Watt faced the media yesterday afternoon in response to his department's rejection of an application to re-export the livestock on board the MV Bahaja around Africa to Israel. He said the exporter must now come up with a new proposal for the livestock on board, but he was not aware of any deadline that has been set for their movements. Minister Watt denied any political involvement in the department's decision made on the export application.
8: No, absolutely, absolutely not. Uh, I have at all times uh, maintained a strong separation from the department because I respect the law. Uh, I've seen some people in the, in the community and some farmer groups speculating uh, that there's been political involvement in this decision. Uh, that is an offensive thing to be suggesting because it suggests that Ministers have broken the law. Uh, no one has any evidence to suggest that. That is wild speculation. Uh, we have respected the fact that this is an independent decision to be reached by the regulator.
7: Meanwhile, a WA farm lobby group says it's likely another attempt will be made to re-export the fifteen thousand head of livestock now stuck at Fremantle Port. WA Farmers' Livestock President Jeff Pearson says the exporter plans to try again.
9: At uh, this stage,
2: that's what the exporter's in anticipation is: is that to remove the livestock from the ship and uh, able to return to quarantine. Uh, the livestock will be rested for up to ten days, and then a permit will be reissued to re-export. Hopefully.
7: And we've heard a lot about Northern Territory and North West Queensland getting big downpours recently, but not everywhere up north is catching the rain. Some parts of northern WA have experienced a very dry start to the wet season. Roebuck Plains Station is in the west Kimberley, just 30 kilometres from Broome. Manager John Geddes recorded less than five millimetres of rain for the month of January.
10: For February, um,
6: it's really dry pretty much no grass growth whatsoever so uh, we've had a couple of smaller storms to the east eastern end of the property on about 100 kilometers away from the floodplain. and uh, the country out there's got a little bit of growth but uh, on 70 percent of the property uh, it's looking very ordinary if we don't get rain by the end of february we'll start mustering and weaning
7: And rural rate rises in Queensland are forcing farmers into other ventures to raise enough money to pay council bills. As Jasmine Hines reports, a central Queensland grazier says rural rates have risen so much it's putting his business at risk and he's working hard to find a solution. For the first time, grazier Daniel Perry has resorted to growing a grain crop on his property near Emerald in a bid to keep up with the skyrocketing cost of his rural rates bill. $30,000
2: thirty thousand dollars is a lot of
1: money to find in a, you know a small family business. So I can't carry more cattle because it's the way the weather is you can't you just can't carry more numbers to pay bills. you've you got to do other stuff because you come unstuck pretty quick with too many numbers when it
2: gets dry. So the plan is to, to have less cattle and try and farm that,
1: that Black Downs country because yeah and, and I guess the issue with that is is the council rates are basically determining the land use.
7: Rates in Queensland are determined by how much revenues councils need to raise alongside the value of the property. There have been calls in recent years to change how council rates are calculated for farmers to limit higher rate costs. And as workforce shortages continue to trouble Australia's horticulture sector, farmers are looking further afield for pickers including to our small northern neighbour, Timor-Leste. Around 7,500 Timorees were employed on Australian farms last year and these workers have been such a success, they're changing production systems on some farms. Melissa Denning is involved in some of the recruitment programs, trying to find the most suitable workers for Aussie fruit farms and says limitations of workers may mean redesigning growing equipment.
11: Height can be for us. Our tabletops generally sit at around... Around 150 centimetres, so we need people that are slightly taller than that. So we generally try and recruit people that are about 155 centimetres tall. An average Timorese lady is around 142 centimetres. Because we have uh, acknowledged that our Timorese workers are, are wonderful for us, we've actually decided to lower some of our tables so that they can actually be more productive and they can actually then obviously do the work faster. For our raspberries and our canes, they actually sit at around 2 metres, 2 metres, 20. So part of the testing I do is actually the height test to make sure that they can reach that high. But in other instances, we've also started to lower some of our canes so that our team can actually do really well at picking our raspberries as well.
7: And that wraps up Rural News.
1: Oh, and while they're at it, they can raise the desk here for some of the taller people. I think that would be lovely, fascinating. What a good... Farm worker means to the design of a farm property. Thank you very much for that, Emma Field, there with Rural News. You're listening to the Country Hour, about to head to the Weather Bureau. Uh, Jack's on the road near Serpentine in Victoria, though, saying, Ghetto was Can't claim a side on this live export problem currently happening in WA. However, I'm just saddened as each day goes by with no final result. I'm a meat eater, but I hate thinking about animals healthy or not being kept in such a way. Uh, says Jack on the text. Thanks for your text, Jack. Let's go to Stephanie uh Miles, senior forecaster at the Weather Bureau to, to go through all of the next week's forecast. Hi, Stephanie. Hi, Laura. How are you going? Yeah, good. Uh, settled conditions still. <laughs>
12: It's never... Very, very much, so look across the state at the moment, it feels like it 's a beautiful day out there uh, we 've got a high pressure ridge over us which is continuing to bring those southerly winds, so it means we 've got some cloudy conditions on and south of the ranges and looks like some beautiful sunny conditions in the northern parts of the state, and with that kind of brings those temperatures around the low to mid twenties in the south and a little bit warmer in the north as well, so up to about the low thirties in the northern parts of the state but look over the next couple of days, remaining very settled Warwick. So for Thursday Friday, you can expect very similar conditions. Perhaps a couple of degrees, you know, add one or two degrees here and there for your max temperatures but otherwise remaining very similar to what we're getting today. We do have a bit of a cold front that's moving through Tasmania on Friday though, which will, the tail of end of it will start to affect our state maybe overnight Friday with a couple of showers being look, kind of increasing in those southern parts, particularly over Gippsland on Saturday. However, on Saturday, Sunday, other lives around the state very settled very nice conditions we've got sunny conditions and those temperatures starting to increase once again for saturday sunday and then by sunday mondays kind of get a big nice trough over the state which will stall everything clear those temperatures once again and i think really over the next week or so the one thing that we're looking at is from tuesday onwards with that trough over us we'll start to move a little bit further eastwards on tuesday and with that bring maybe some more warmer and northerly gusts winds and perhaps a little bit gusty in the south as well, so perhaps our fire danger rating's jumping up a little bit on the Tuesday, but I mean, that's nearly a week away Was other than that, we've just got a really nice couple of days to enjoy across the state.
1: So, and you mentioned this yesterday on the radar too, that the, the longer forecast doesn't really have a big rainfall event on it yet, yeah?
12: No, it doesn't, unfortunately. I think on Tuesday with that trough that might be moving across the state, we could get a couple of showers and thunderstorms. But, I mean, from what I'm looking at the moment, there's, you know, nothing over about 5 to 10 millimetres. There's no tropical moisture coming down like what we had last week or anything. So very standard rainfall summer event if we do get one on Tuesday.
1: But with the settled conditions, Stephanie, after the last few years of constant uh, flood warnings and weather warnings and marine wind warnings, there's, there's no warnings for Victoria there's- right now.
12: There's absolutely no for Victoria right now. <laughs> it's a bit crazy to think that they've got actually no warnings out at the moment. But also, I mean, for those people who really want that kind of weather, I'm really happy for you. And, you know, hopefully the settled conditions are bringing some, I don't know, some relaxing times, but maybe some good times for people as well. I'm not sure entirely what everyone needs for their farms, but I hope everyone's getting what they need.
1: Yeah, surely no no warnings. Weather balloons need to come from the ceiling or something like that, you know? <laughs> it needs to, need to be any... Uh, <laughs> A moment of celebration after so many warnings over the last few years. But you're right, uh, not everybody gets the weather they want all the time and you're, you're no doubt aware of that. Stephanie, thank you for the update all the same.
12: Thanks so much, Warwick. Enjoy your day.
1: Stephanie Miles there, senior forecaster at the Weather Bureau, taking you through the full forecast. Uh, speaking of forecast, it was forecast to be a good grain harvest in Victoria right up until about harvest time and then constant rainfall events. Wild weather events, including hail and storms and a myriad of other challenges uh, put a damper on on it for a lot of growers but despite all of that, graincorp, the giant storage and handling company, will go close to setting. A Victorian receival record this harvest, with the state accounting for more than half of the company's total receivals across eastern Australia. Around 4.3 million tonnes have been delivered to Cranecorp's Victorian sites, just behind the record-breaking 2010 harvest when 4.5 million tonnes were delivered. Angus Verley spoke with Nigel Lotz, General Manager of Operations at GrainCorp, about how the harvest has played out.
13: Yeah, interesting year when you've got uh, harvest starting in Central Queensland in August. You're pretty well thinking it's going to be wrapped up pretty quickly, and the way it turned out was was anything but um, certainly better than expectations. Particularly in the south, some great uh, and, and a lot of anecdotes of growers too having a, a good experience getting the grain in before the majority of the of the weather. And down to Victoria where it's gone on for quite a while, but again, some some huge volumes, so which has really been quite exciting. And yeah, overall. Yeah, happy with the result in terms of where we started.
9: What's the rough total tonnage that you've taken across the entire network?
13: Yeah, over 8 million, sort of 8.1, depending on whether you count the, the, the last part of um, last financial year. And to give context, last year was about 11.3, and then the two years before that, 13.3 and 13.3. But Victoria's had its its biggest receivable since uh, 2010, uh, 4.3 million tonnes. So you know, it, it's you know, the, the grain is certainly centralised down in that southern area. And you look at the sites within that, um, you know, we've got uh, yeah, especially areas, which I've, which is pleasing for me, where we've done a lot of work with the additional storage program in the last couple of years. Sites so like Elmore, where you know, 206,000, uh, its record was only the year before, 189. Uh, Murchton East, 104, previously 93, nil, 254. That's a bit a big one in the Wimmera the bill two hundred and seven thousand. So yeah, some big. Uh, in all, there was eight uh, site receivable records in Victoria broken, and and a sign of a of a big year.
9: Those challenging weather conditions you touched on. I, I did speak to some growers who said their local receivable sites had taken some some higher than the, than typical spec moisture grain just to keep harvest rolling. Uh, did GrainCorp do that, and have you had challenges in blending or, or drying out that high moisture grain?
13: Look, with a season like this, it's always a challenge. At the start, just in terms of the rate of the tonnage coming in, it was on par with the other big years. It was coming very quickly. Then the rain happened and that's just very difficult for everyone from growers to us in terms of the stop-start. That affects all your labour, uh, getting equipment in the right spot, um, the whole harvest coming in at the same time. From a moisture point of view, it's it's always challenging. We've got to adhere to our standards. the end of day, our base of grain is used to underwrite everyone else's blends, I suppose, and... Um, I know a lot of people push it. Um, from experience, you push it too far, you end up with uh, losses as you outload. Obviously, every ton once it's in, then we underwrite the, the quality and the, of that grain as we outload it. So we certainly monitor that carefully. If we can push, we we do to a certain amount. Uh, probably not as much as others uh, that I've heard about the place, and probably as you're noting there. But uh, it's it is a challenge. And at the end of the day, though, anyone that's stores high moisture grain and you store it for long periods of time you get a lot of losses from the crusting.
9: And on the weather as well I know a while back now you spoke to my colleague Warwick about all of that rain that fell at the Denny site and a lot of water pooled around around the bunkers what was the the outcome of that did you lose much grain?
13: No we didn't look that was and unfortunately the photos probably the piece of the worst situation than what actually eventuated there was a whole deluge uh, there very quickly uh, luckily for us in terms of The site teams and how everything had been prepared. Uh, We had minimal losses from that, and the site was opening within a couple of days.
9: And growers, of course, when the time pressure's on at harvest, they're always looking to get through the the receival sites as quickly as possible. So, have you got works planned to put in more, whatever, whether it's weighing or testing or or outloading infrastructure or inloading infrastructure to to speed up receival times for next season?
13: But we're always conscious of that, and. The benefit of this year compared to the previous big years is the harvest did stagger a piece. The north was over very quickly. So, a lot of that investment we put over the years in terms of our individual uh, stacking equipment was moved south in some of the southern sites. Um, some of the ones I mentioned with the records where we've done a lot of work over the, the last year in particular and previous years before that, such as Elmore, Murchison, Neil, Bill. they all got the benefit of the works that we've done over the last few years, whether it's additional way bridges or drop-off points and improvements in traffic flow. We're very conscious of that time from paddock to site to paddock. In terms of investment going forward, we've we've had big investments over the last few years. One part as you're indicating is grain in, but also the grain out is important for the whole value chain for the and particularly what we can pay for the grower.
9: And just finally, Nigel, looking to the future again what we're seeing now is with, with comparable rainfall years, people are growing more and more crop with better varieties and better growing practices, et cetera. So is that what GrainCorp needs to plan for for the future?
13: Absolutely. We, we keep in touch. In terms of our grower liaison piece, we're always looking at what new varieties are coming on. Uh, in terms of the effect of that on segregations, that sometimes becomes a challenge, particularly barley. Uh, in terms of the, some of the wheat varieties, particularly the red wheats down in areas like Barry Bank, where we've increased the site size totally due to the feedback from the growers saying i need more capacity where hamilton is another site where we've done work as well but traditional non-cropping areas or areas some areas became more cropping focuses the farmers might move out of dairy for instance that's that's certainly on our um, viewpoint in terms of what the future and where we've got to invest we've got to be able to match that um, these big yields yielding varieties are excellent um, and we've got to participate in demonstrate that we can offer value to the grower so we can participate in that value chain.
1: That's Nigel Lots, General Manager of Operations at GrainCorp, speaking there with Angus Verley. Incredible to think about a difficult year being, well, one of the biggest in terms of our harvest. Why do you think that is? Do you see the huge uh, increase in technology and, and skill of Victoria's farmers uh, shining through in a, in a difficult year, being one of the best, uh, almost a record-setting harvest. You can send us a text, 0467 On the text line, Malcolm from Merveen says, the forecast is ideal. We're talking the dry forecast earlier. He says, it's ideal for Sunraysia dried fruit growers who are just about to start their harvest. Of course, you'll be looking for dry conditions for that, Malcolm, and very important information to add. So thank you very much to for providing that through to us on the text line and it flows in nicely to our next story. The value of Australia's horticultural production went up last year despite major flooding at the end of 2022 and a huge drop in the value of almonds which is Australia's most valuable horticultural export. That's according to the annual statistics handbook which is released uh, today by horticultural research and development group Hort Innovation. The industry insights manager there Lucy Noble says the industry's remained strong to despite some of those big difficulties.
0: Essentially, we're seeing some really optimistic growth across the entire horticulture industry. The overall value of the industry has gone up 2.8% to reach $16.25 billion. And we're seeing some really optimistic um, and positive signs, particularly for a lot of our fruit lines, where we've seen the value of the industry grow remarkably, and particularly for some of those Victorian categories around table grapes, and then also further up north. In avocados, we've also seen some really optimistic growth We've seen some good encouraging signs within the vegetable industry as well, which is quite a mainstay in Victoria. Um, So generally speaking, we're seeing some good signs, but that's not to say that it hasn't been a challenging year for a lot of our growers.
14: This report covers the 2023 financial year, which of course includes those massive floods that we had at the end of 2022. It was interesting to see the overall value of vegetable production went up despite that. Could you talk me through that a little bit? So
0: we've seen in the last, in FY23, we've seen vegetable value come up 5.4% and optimistically that growth has come across quite broadly the entire vegetable category. Um, there has been some kind of drivers of growth, but generally speaking, we're just seeing some solid growth across a lot of a lot of the vegetable lines, I think an important one within the vegetable one to take note of is that we're still seeing that volume share come down. So volume came down nearly 3% in FY23, which is in recognition of the fact that it's still a lot of our east coast growers, in particular within vegetables, are still looking to regroup and recover from essentially the last two or three years of floods that have really affected those lines. And so we're
14: still seeing that kind of stabilisation of supply and demand. So the value's going up, the volume's gone down. Does that mean that farmers mm-hmm. have gotten a bit more money in their pockets over the last 12 months?
0: If only it was as simple as that. No, that does that's not necessarily the case um, at all and that's not what we're seeing. But what we are seeing is that obviously quite basic supply-demand principles is that as demand or as supply sorry, is diminish, we are seeing that price come up for the commodities that are, that are making it to market. And when we're seeing bo- volume recover in some of the industries but it is actually just a few vegetable lines in particular that have been badly affected by um by the recuperating of volumes so it's just a few of the few of the industries in particular where volume hasn't recovered to the same extent
14: and which industries were the most affected by the floods
0: we're seeing it we're seeing large dips in volume particularly within within vegetables from tomatoes so that was down 120 thousand tons which was that actually was the difference between the production volumes of 2022 to 2023. So that was the primary driver of volumes within the vegetable lines coming back. We're seeing it also within onions. We saw volumes come back for some of the smaller categories as well, which when they are smaller categories and the overall production is less, it can have a large difference. So for things like asparagus, for cabbage, for carrots as well, we're seeing volumes come back across the board for those categories as well within vegetable lines.
14: And... Turning to nuts now, nuts oh. have been a bit of a loser in this this particular report There's been a huge mm. decrease in particularly the value of nuts mm. over the last twelve months and also a bit of a drop in the volume. Can you talk me through what's been behind that?
0: yeah you're right in terms of a, a standout of performance and where we're seeing value value really come back this year it was in the nat, nut lines as you said, value came back forty two percent on the prior year, <clears throat> and that is being driven by Largely by almonds and macadamias, but we're seeing value come back for almost all the nut lines um, apart from hazelnuts. And the reason for this is it's a complex, well, a little bit of a complex answer, Elsie, but it kind of comes back to the, at the moment, the global supply of um, nuts over the last year has really increased. And so it's where we're seeing changes in the export opportunities for nuts um, and the values coming back somewhat there.
14: Australia's most valuable horticultural export is, is almonds. So a big drop in that one commodity could have a big impact, couldn't it?
0: That's, yeah, that's, that's completely correct. And I think one thing to take note of is the fact that we have seen quite a significant drop in value of those nut lines. But we've also seen a really significant growth in those industries. And as you said, in the almond industry, we've seen the value of exports in almonds grow by 200, 300% over the last 10 years. And so there has been a significant growth in those lines. But that's not to take away from the fact that, as you said, it is really, it's a large comeback on the last few years of performance in particular.
1: Mm. That's Horticulture Innovation Industry Insights Manager Lucy Noble speaking there with Elsie Kennedy about the statistics in horticulture. I think you'll hear a lot more from that as people go through the data and find out really what it means. For some of the industries that sometimes don't grab the headlines when we talk about farming in Australia that create big value. Uh, for Australia, and many of you are often buying when you're heading down your supermarket or your local shop aisles. Hey, in breaking news right now, speaking of those aisles, Alan Fells, Professor Alan Fells, the former head of the ACCC, uh, is delivering a press club address right now saying the government should do more to rein in business price gouging and unfair pricing practices. He was commissioned by the unions group ACTU to look at the issue And today he's released that report on it uh, at the National Press Club, which is going on as we speak. Here's a little of what he's having to say about price gouging, about unfair pricing practices at areas like supermarket and for things like meat.
8: The cause is weak and ineffective competition in too many sectors of the economy. Two policies are needed. First, the Australian government needs to act on high prices to investigate their nature and causes and, where possible, their remedies. The remedies don't include price controls, but there is much that governments can do. Secondly, greatly strengthen competition policy to remove or weaken market power which enables the excessive prices to be charged. So the focus is the effects of prices on ordinary people, on workers, on uh, farmers, uh, on poor and disadvantaged people. In my report, I refer to prices going up quicker than they fall. Petrol is a well-known example. Goes up fast, falls slowly. This is sometimes called the rocket and feathers effect. When costs rise, business prices rise fast, like a rocket. When costs fall, business prices fall slowly to the ground like a feather. It's very profitable to delay price falls. A recent example, well-known concerns meat. Now, as inflation starts to fall, I'm concerned there may be a rockets and feathers effect on prices. We want business to play its role. Having played a role in getting prices up, we want it to play a role in getting them down like rockets, not feathers.
1: That is former head of the ACCC, Professor Alan Fells, speaking there. We will bring you a lot more coverage on what his report says tomorrow on the country hour. So watch this space for that. If you have some thoughts, would love you to send them through. You can always send us an email, countryhour at abc.net.au to email us at the country hour. To market to market, let's head to Lee and Gather to start things off today. And we'll go to Brendan Fletcher. G'day Brendan. G'day Warwick. There were
2: 260 more at 2900 with a trade order rejoining the buying group after a long absence in a mixed market. Quality was good with all weights and grades represented. Trade cattle lifted 5 to 10 cents on most sales with more feeder competition. Grown steers and bullocks sold firm. Manufacturing steers eased 10. Veal is sold from 272 to 408. Yearling trade steers 300 to 380. The heifer portion 266 to 398. Grown steers 300 to 316. Bullocks 300 to 332 heavy grown heifers 278 to 312 heavy frisian manufacturing steers 230 to 278 crossbreds 250 to 314 this is brendan fletcher reporting for mla with nearly a thousand cows and
1: 70 bulls still to be sold good luck with that thank you very much for that brendan let's go to the sheep and lamb markets now we'll go to hamilton to kick things off today chris agnew take it away
10: Thanks, Warwick, with 15,000 lambs being offered, a reduction of some 8,000 head. Despite the fall in numbers, there was another very good yarding of well-finished trade-weight lambs, which included a small tail along with some, a smaller number of lambs offered in the wool. Regular processes operated, but not all were fully active, along with a very strong restocking and feeder interest from local areas in south of South Australia. The market was fully firm over most categories, with the lambs destined for the paddock, dearer by ten dollars a head again this week. The best of the heavy lambs topped out at two hundred and thirty-four dollars, with most lambs to the trade, making between six twenty and seven hundred cents. Like 12 to 16 kg lambs sold from a 93 to 132 with lambs to the trade 18 to 22s, 129 to 171 with the 22 to 26 kilos, making from 170 to $207. topped topped at 134. At Hamilton, this is Chris Agnew reporting for MLA.
1: Thank you very much for that, Chris. Lucky last on the market run today is the Horsham Sheep and Lamb Report. Graham Pimer
15: can help us out there. Good afternoon, Graham. Good afternoon, everyone. Lamb numbers eased to seven thousand one hundred and fifty. and was a big drop in sheep supply to one thousand and fifty head. Quality was mostly good, with all weights on offer. User buying group and tender operating with less urgency in an easier market. Lighter weights selling close to firm. Medium and heavy weights selling from ten to fifteen dollars head down on last week's strong levels. Medium and heavy trade weights sold from one sixty one to one seventy two, with the heavy lamb selling from two twelve to two thirty five. Unshorn lambs sold from 82 to 168 to be to $5 at easier. Restockers are active, paid from $101 to $160 for shorn lambs, and from $25 to 139 for unshorn lambs. Most restocking lambs are dearer. The small sheep offering sold to regular buying group at reduced levels, generally $10 to $20 at easier on last week. Reno ewes selling to $108, heavy cost per ewes to $84. Graham grand Horsham from LA. Thank you very much for
1: that, Graeme. That's almost all the time we have for you on the Country Hour today. A couple of comments coming in on the rural news item today of the Queensland Grazier, who says he's had to start growing crops to try and make enough money from his farm to pay his council rates. Uh, many of you wanting to have a say on that. Jeff says, hi, Warwick. The comments from the Queensland Grazier regarding council rating is relevant in Victoria with a rating system causing financial stress. And land management issues. And then this text came in as well. It's an anonymous one, but it says an interesting question comes to mind when hearing rating on property causing problems on that rural news item. What's the inflationary effect of governance costs on society? Interesting question indeed. Maybe cause for a wider debate. Thank you very much for sending it through and all of your texts on the program today. Uh, Phil in Achuca can have the final say though, because Phil has sent a text and it's a brag, but I'm here for it, Phil. Saying, check this out, was I met Mul 28 degrees today. No wind. have caught four fish. Murray Cod says Phil in a juke who puts the photo of the fishing rod extending out over Lake Mulwhala looking like a sheet of glass at midday. That is incredible, Phil. Thank you for reminding me I've just gotten back from a holiday and it'll probably be a long time before I get to go out on another holiday soon (laughs) fishing or something else. Thanks very much for all of your texts and being involved in the program today. If you want to listen back, we are a podcast. Just search for the Victorian Country Hour wherever you get podcasts and you'll be able to listen back to the show there. Have a great afternoon. It's coming up to one o'clock.